This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Well, I think a lot of it were the changes with what's uh, called MITSA, the Maritime Transportation Safety Act, that now required all of the ships and all of the ports and all the facility operators to have essentially a security plan that met certain federal standards. And that I faced primarily while I was working at the Coast Guard because at the time I was there, they were implementing MITSA. Uh, what I see uh, in the ports is what you see in a lot of cities and counties because ports work as uh, revenue-generating operations for typically cities or an authority. they got to make money, so they're lean when it comes to staff. And uh, same thing with the ferry systems I work with, very lean, and they don't often have the resources to dedicate for a full-time staff that does uh, emergency preparedness or security work. Probably more the security because it's mandated, but less the emergency management work. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And during the holiday season, have you ever wondered how all those items get on the shelves of your favorite store? Well, they all come through the ports. And that's one of the areas in emergency management that we really don't think of a lot. And I had the privilege to sit down with Lee Rosenberg, a retired Navy captain, and discuss port emergency management. Before we get into your interview, I want to take a minute of your time to... Just discuss some of the things that's happening with EM Weekly. Changing a little bit of our look and feel here on the website. Well, matter of fact, I've been talking to some students and some colleagues over the past year and doing a little bit of research. Found that realistically, the the website is uh, kind of going away. Um, as early as 2014, people have been reporting about you know websites going away, like I just said. And a good example of this is in 2016, a Google executive was saying that websites are going to be like vinyl. They're going away. But eh, not really. They're going to change. It's going to be a little bit different. We're going to, have, we're going to see in the near future here a different feel and, and look on what websites are and how they interact. And people, and you guys out there know, you're more interested in interaction with things like Twitter, Facebook. YouTube, where you can comment, have conversations back and forth about the content that's out there. And we're seeing this today, even with like television and other entertainment that's going away from the traditional cable into more streaming content. So today, I'd like to announce that we're going to be doing some work with um, Sitch Radio. We're already on there as one of the shows that they, that they have on Sitch Radio, but we're going to be moving our platform more to Sitch Radio. We're going to be redirecting our website um, to there. We're also going to be doing more with YouTube, uh, producing more video content for YouTube and, and Facebook, and we're going to be working more with LinkedIn with our blog type posts, and the conversations that we can have on those platforms are really more interactive, and that's what we're looking for. Because one of the things that I've been really been thinking about is our why. Why do we do what we do at Ian Meekly? And at the end of the day, our why is to reach, teach, and inspire emergency managers across the world and really learn from each other the best practices, what we're doing, how we are doing things differently and in each location around the world, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, K 
Canada, in Mexico, South America countries that have listened to and have commented, and we've interviewed people from all those areas about what's going on, what's the best practices, and how can we do the best thing for the people who we serve as emergency managers. And that's what we're really all about here. It is about building that community. And I think using the platforms that are there now, such as Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, I think we could build a better emergency management community. And the conversations that we're having on LinkedIn and Facebook are awesome. And I want to see more of that. And this is why that we're looking at the trends and we're going to be using those platforms to promote emergency management and what we're doing at Ian Weekly. You know, leading the emergency management information genre. So looking forward to interacting with y'all on those sites. And well, now to the interview. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Hey, I got uh, Lee Rosenberg here with me today. Uh, known him for a little while and uh, excited to have him on the show. Lee, welcome to EM Weekly. Well, thanks for having me here. I'm, I'm glad to participate. So Lee, tell me a little bit about how you got into involved in emergency management and uh, what your travels are and where you are today. You know, it's a very long story. I, I spent 30 years on active duty in the Navy, and an unexpected assignment after 9-11 was I went to U.S. Coast Guard Area Pacific as their director of plans and exercises as a Navy captain. And we were very much involved in the transition of the Coast Guard into a security and homeland security, particularly maritime homeland security organization and interfacing with the Navy and the armed forces for homeland security and homeland defense. I retired from there, and it was very interesting. The commanding officer at the time was a man named Harvey Johnson, who became the deputy director of FEMA uh, after the Hurricane Katrina debacle in 2005. I retired in 2006. He retired three months earlier and twisted my arm very hard to go to work for FEMA as a federal coordinating officer for FEMA Region 9. And I did that for a couple of years, a lot of deployments, a lot of time back in Washington working with the National Response Coordination Center, trying to make it more operational. Uh, I didn't get much time at home, so after two years I'd had enough, and I went to work as a consultant for URS Corporation in Oakland, California. I led their West Coast Emergency Management Practice and their uh, Northern California Environmental Services Division. I did that for six years and decided it would be more interesting and more fun to run my own consulting company, and I started navigating preparedness in March of 2014. Outstanding. So, Lee, what were some of the challenges that you had going through that whole, your whole transition and, and whatnot? You know, I think it sort of was an interesting flow of one thing leading to another. I had a fairly easy time transitioning from the military into becoming a civilian. Of course, I went to work for FEMA. Uh, government agency, federal government agency, which is somewhat organized along the way any response organization is, operations, plans, etc. So that was easy. The cultural changes were, were something interesting to face. Uh, a bigger challenge was going from that federal government culture into a civilian workforce, uh, especially as a manager. The fact that the civilians don't respond the same way that sailors and Marines do. 
Uh, I'm not going to say which one's better or worse, but <laughs> it's a very different leadership style, and you need to work more on being collegial and collaborative. You can't just say, we're getting underway at 0630. Everybody's going to be on board at 0500. Right. Navigating preparedness, what is that, and, and what do you guys do? It, it's, it's a consulting firm. Uh, we do emergency management and homeland security consulting primarily in uh, the West Coast, uh, Oregon, California, Arizona. And it's uh, myself as the uh, sole proprietor and several associates. And we will do all sorts of work. We specialize in maritime homeland security. We've done a number of projects uh, with ferries, ports, uh, regional maritime organizations, but we also do county and city emergency operation plan updates, revisions. We do hazard mitigation plans. We do HCP compliant exercises. We've done a lot of work with uh, the other side of water, which are water districts and water authorities. So let's talk a little bit about um, maritime security and how, how that works. So again, back to the challenges, because I think we learn from what your challenges were and how you overcame them. What were some of the bigger challenges that you had going into, say, some of the ports and what you've been working with? Well, I think a lot of it was the changes with what's uh, called MITSA, the Maritime Transportation Safety Act, that now required all of the ships and all of the ports and all the facility operators to have essentially a security plan that met certain federal standards. And that I faced primarily while I was working at the Coast Guard because at the time I was there, they were implementing MITSA. What I see in the ports is what you see in a lot of cities and counties because ports work as uh, revenue-generating operations for typically cities or an authority. they got to make money, so they're lean when it comes to staff. And uh, same thing with the ferry systems I work with, very lean, and they don't often have the resources to dedicate for a full-time staff that does uh, emergency preparedness or security work. Probably more the security because it's mandated, but less the emergency management work. So as we have these larger storms coming in, especially on the, the southeast areas like we just had with uh, Florence and last year with Harvey and Maria and those, do you work with them to talk about what their plans should be for, for those type of storms as well? I mean, and are they really prepared for those storms? You know, they're as prepared as they can be. All of the ports have a continuity of operation, a business continuity plan. You know, not just the storms where I work primarily in California, it's earthquakes. The, the issue becomes trying to restore revenue-generating operations as quickly as possible. Of course, the real problems are making sure that you can get power uh, because without power, you can't do any terminal operations, whether it's a fuel terminal or a container terminal or a, a bulk terminal. Uh, and then you've got to make sure you can get your employees in, that you have roads and accesses. And, of course, the ports, for the most part, there's some all along rivers, are the most exposed to hurricanes. And they just have to shut down. Of course, the shipping runs from the hurricane, so they're not going to return until the storm's over. And then it's a matter of reconstituting all of the things that make a port work. The trucking in and out, the power, the staff, you name it. So when it comes to the port, what is your biggest concern, I suppose, for like a better term? Well, the port's biggest concern is that there's, especially container ports, which are the majority of what I work with, Two things. One, that there's a, a large enough business disruption that cargo start going to other ports. And then once that occurs, terminal operators face making a decision of moving and shutting down terminal operating 
operations in a particular port. And, of course, that's a death knell from a business point of view. Right. Do you, what do you see that where we can transition some of the lessons that you learn from working with the ports? You said that you work with cities and counties as well. Mm-hmm. Some of the lessons that you learn on the maritime side, how do you transition that into the, uh, the dry side? It's about resiliency. One of the biggest concerns we have on an earthquake in the Bay Area and Southern California are the refineries. They have maritime terminals. It's all built on liquefiable land, or at least a lot of it is. And they need power to run. They have their own power plants, but they need fuel to run the power plants. And then they got to be able to transport the fuel from their refinery through the pipelines and through uh, rail to the users. Uh, there's no connection in between Northern and Southern California refineries. There's no pipeline that goes all the way. And once those refineries lose the ability to produce uh, refined products, then you start shutting down power plants and you shut down the uh, response vehicles. So they run out of gas and it becomes a cascading effect. Cities and counties face the same issues. You have to be able to bring in prime power to maintain all of the other critical infrastructure so that you can provide the services that your population and your communities need. So you used your word resilience just a minute ago, and, and that seems to be the new buzzword in emergency management. We have the 100 resilient cities from the Rockefeller Foundation and things like that. So what does resiliency and resilience mean to, to you in emergency management? It means that you have plans and processes and procedures and equipment in place so that when the big one hits, you at least have a means to start restoring essential services. And it's both what government does and it's what your communities and the people in the communities do. Individuals that are resilient don't need the help of government. They've got 20 days of food instead of three. And they they realize they can use their hot water heater to give them 30 or 40 gallons of water. They, They know what to do with their animals. They can find their children. They've got six propane canisters outside to run their barbecue so that if they don't get power back. It starts really there. But then it also becomes working as they, another buzzword, whole community between business and government and the people in the community. Because if the jobs don't reopen, the businesses don't reopen, and people have jobs, if the schools don't reopen, and they can't find daycare for their kids, which is what our schools do now, so that the people can go to those jobs, then people are going to move away. Some people are going to evacuate. But if they don't have a plan to bring them back and provide them with everything they need, then the communities are going to face what New Orleans did, very, very tough economic times. We're going to take a quick break here and listen to what our sponsors have to say, and we'll be right back to the interview in a minute. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Emergency managers need exercise in order to test preparedness and efficiency during an emergency situation. TTX Vault provides pre-assembled, pre-filled out tabletops, drills, and functionals so you can exercise more effectively and at a reduced cost. 
With TTX Vault, customers receive either a disk or flash drive pre-uploaded with the exercise of their choice. Print out the documents, review, fill in the information, and you are ready to execute the exercise. Your first step to preparedness is going to ttxvault.com. Thank you for listening to our sponsors, and without them, we really can't do what we're doing. So check them out. Let them know that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, New Orleans is still like 100,000 people short of their population from when uh, Katrina occurred. Basically, they moved away. Houston picked up mm-hmm. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Dallas, even even California got a bunch. And they just haven't gone back. And, and the Ninth Ward is still a ghost town to some extent. You know, so I, I see that as, you're right, that's the opposite of what resilience really <laughs> is. And, and uh, you know, maybe we could see what's going on now with Florence and things like this and see maybe maybe some of the lessons that we learned from Katrina uh, were able to go into effect uh, for the Carolinas with what's going on with the flooding and whatnot with Florence. How do you think we as emergency managers can do a better job with picking up that preparedness and resilience mantra? I think it starts by the emergency managers, the consultants, not so much. We're hopefully behind the scenes providing support. The emergency managers, and most of them do a great job, need to get out in their communities. They have to have the time. They have to have the resources. If you have two people in your county emergency management staff, you're pretty stretched, just you know, making ends meet. Get out in the communities. Engage with business. Set up a business utility operations center, if your county is large enough to have, you know, big utility operators in business, so that when you open your EOC, they're there. And they're beginning to do the recovery at the beginning of the disaster because you can't do it for them. So the emergency managers, and we all pretty much know this, need to build coalitions, we need to conduct outreach, and we need to stress to our bosses over and over again the importance of what we do. Because if we fail, they fail. What does it take to build that resilient community? It takes everybody in it. It takes leadership. It takes champions. It takes finding the right people in the community outside of government that'll pick up the torch and run with it. And it just takes hard work. You can't do it on a 40-hour-a-week basis. Yeah, I wish we could do it on a 40-hour-a-week basis. (laughs) You know, so you you mentioned leadership, and that was going to be my next question. It's a good segue. What leadership lessons did you learn being an officer in the Navy? I was a petty officer in the Navy, but what did you learn as being an officer in the Navy where you can uh, instill onto the young emergency managers coming up uh, through the ranks? Well, you know, I had a a bunch of opportunities for leadership from a very early start, but I I, I learned a lot. I had command of a destroyer in the mid-90s, and I did pretty well with that destroyer. We went to the Persian Gulf and back. We brought everybody home safely. We did all of our missions. Then I had command of a much larger unit at Camp Pendleton, and what I learned probably from one command to another is trust your staff, make sure you pick the right ones to trust the most, and let them do their jobs without providing too much rudder order. And that seemed to be a good way of of running things. Uh, You still have to know what's going on. If you don't understand your systems and you don't know where your your craft are, then bad things can happen. But empower your, your subordinates and your staff to do their job and then praise them. Yeah, I think that's an important part too. I, I know that um, that's one of the things that I love doing with our with our CERT program is getting them trained up, 
getting those guys into the leadership positions, picking the right people, and saying, hey, this is the commander's intent, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's like, here's the commander's intent. This is what we want to do. And it's amazing the, the work that they'll do for you when they know that you're supporting them, one, and two, that you're not you know, micromanaging all, every single movement that happens, you know. And I think that's a really important portion of, of leadership in general. Um, and I think we, we as emerging managers can use our volunteer staff in the same way that we use paid staff because most of us, small city people, we don't have six, eight, ten staff members. We have us. And then we have volunteers. And I think that we need to be able to trust them as well. What do you think of the volunteer programs? Now, I know you're part of Team Rubicon as well. Mm -hmm. What kind of work can volunteers do in a disaster? You know, there's a lot of things they can do. Everything from helping to staff shelters or points of distribution. The volunteer management is a a huge part of uh, overall emergency response. And it's tough because volunteers may not show up for a whole day or they may find that it's harder than they wanted to. And they may say, I'm going to be there for a week, and then they realize their back hurts from whatever you've asked them to do, and they they go home. But they offer a tremendous resource. Some of them have tremendous skills. You mentioned Team Rubicon. I deployed with them just a a few uh, really days ago, three, four weeks, for the fires up in uh, Shasta County. We went to Redding. And we did work out in the field for the car fire. And we set up a ICS-compliant uh, organization, and we went out into people's homes and sifted and did saw work. And as much as we did uh, the physical things, it was the outreach to the community, I think, that really mattered to the people that we engaged with. You know, talk about the community, those guys that are out there doing that work. Uh, it's amazing that how thankful the community really is for for the work that that the volunteers are doing, whether it be Team Rubicon or the CERT program or the American Red Cross. You know, I I think that the volunteers that are involved as organizations get a lot out of of that because of the the gratitude that the community members give them. And I think that's one of the things that we have to remember as emergency managers kind of going back on this as far as the leadership goes, is that we need to embrace the volunteer programs and, and not fight against them. And I've seen a lot of districts that have fought against the volunteer programs. And I was reading an article the other day regarding Florence that one of the cities, I don't remember which one, was kicking out volunteer groups I think it was a command and control issue that they had down there, or also trust of what the capabilities were. But they're kicking volunteer groups out, saying, you know, if you're not affiliated specifically with the city, you're gone. Um, and I found that kind of interesting that that was the take they took on there. Uh, what do you think of that? You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, I did the first uh, Team Rubicon op in California. It wasn't much. We tore down a double wide in uh, Plumas County. And I watch the counties in California and the state except Team Rubicon. We did another op during the Lake County fires. And then when we were done helping the Red Cross do damage assessments, we went to the EOC and we said, we'd like to help. And they said, well, can you sort clothes? We got a bunch of strapping young former Marines and soldiers, probably not the right assignment. But I think embracing those volunteers, and it's my command control issue is you're right. You have a larger span of control. You don't know if they're vetted. Of course, VOADs help. But part of it is getting that volunteer management program in place before the disaster so you know who's who, who can help, and what their capabilities are, and they're vetted. I think the other thing is the volunteers, while they take time and effort to manage, bring a huge 
emotional benefit, as you were alluding to, to the community. Just the fact that somebody drove up from the Bay Area to Reading and slept in a cot in a gym somewhere and then went and put on a, a, a Tyvek suit and sifted through their ashes. I mean, the, the, the gratitude is overwhelming. And I mean, you know, it's an amazing emotional experience. It really is. I'll tell you, from, from all my time of doing response and recovery and, and this, I got to, uh, I was at the Blue Cut Fire, and going and taking a look at people and saying, okay, yeah, we're going to be able to take care of this. And they're like, well, we don't have insurance. We're like, don't worry about it. We, we got it. We're going we're gonna to be able to, we're not, might not be able to build your house right now, but we're going to be able to clean this entire place up so you have a clean slate to go and, and, mm-hmm. and to rebuild. And there's just the amazing emotional outpouring that these people uh, give to you when you give them that, that little glimmer of hope after they've lost everything. I think that's very important. Okay, a couple things. Come last. We're getting here close to the end here. So how, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, how would they find you? I've got a website for my company. It's navigatingpreparedness.com. And there's all sorts of contact information there. Uh, They can call me. Uh, My number is 925-381-0583. And so email, phone call, text, pretty good with any of that. I've got a Facebook page for the company. I don't use it much. (laughs) And and for those of you that are driving and you don't have your pencil sharpened, don't worry about it. We'll put all that information into the show notes. You can find it either on ianweekly.com or whatever listening device that you're listening to, and you'll be able to find it in the show notes there as well. So don't fret if you're looking for Lee's information. So Lee, last question, toughest question. What book or books do you recommend to people in emergency management, whether it's emergency management or leadership? Well, I'd say leadership. There's an old, old, very skinny book called Tao and the Art of Mentoring. And it probably has more information on leadership than you can find in any number of the latest leadership books that are, you know, trending. Um, there's a new one every year or two that become wildly popular and somebody makes a lot of money off of them, does the Sunday morning talk shows and I would recommend that. So the Tao of leadership. Yeah, anything. You start talking about the Tao of anything, it's always kind of interesting, right? You know, yeah. I even read the whole Tao of Pooh series because it's just, you know, they were able to do it. It's awesome. Awesome, Lee. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Spend some time with the listeners here at Ian Weekly. Is there anything you'd like to say to the emergency manager before we let you go? You know, there isn't much. You've asked a lot of questions. I, I think emergency management is a growing and increasingly complex field. And we'd really like to get some young, bright talent into emergency management. A lot of us are old guys like me, and we're not going to be around for very much longer. This is true. This is true. And I love the scene. Um, I teach, as most of you guys who listen to me know, and it's nice to see the young generation come up and uh, and really grab the uh, the mantle of emergency management and hold on to it and, and moving it forward. Because I think there's some really cool, innovative ideas that these young people have that are coming in from straight out of college into emergency management. And I think it's a, it's a really great path and career path. Lee, thank you again for being here. It's fun. Thanks, Todd. Good talking with you. <laughs>